produced by Ranting Rhino Productions. Praxis Pedagogy exists to position our teaching and learning practice within different methodologies. We want to construct a guild of educators dedicated to designing a difference in our own teaching and learning and in our students' experience. Hey everybody, welcome back to session three of this Open Educational Podcast series. So glad that you've come back to listen to Brenna Clark Gray. That's right. Brenna Clark Gray is my guest on this session three. Now, Brenna is coordinator educational technologies at Thompson Rivers University, where her research interests include the history and future of open tenure processes, the role of care and care work in the practice of educational technology and scholarly podcasting. That's right. Scholarly podcasting. Prior to her transition to faculty support, she spent nine years as a community college English professor and a comics scholar. Also, she's published exclusively on Canadian comics and representations of Canada in mainstream American comic books. She holds a PhD in Canadian literature from the University of New Brunswick. Now, outside of the Academy's walls, Brenna co-hosts Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a podcast about young adult literature and film adaptation and pretends at the role of a public intellectual on Twitter. You can find her on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. It's my distinct pleasure and honor to have Brenna come back to the podcast. Thanks very much. We'll catch you on the other side. Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me. My name is Brenna Clark Gray, and I'm coordinator of educational technologies at Thompson Rivers University in beautiful Tecumloops, Tessequim. Wow. Beautiful. Thank you for that uh, land acknowledgement. You're the first one to do that, by the way, in in that kind of format. So that's kind of cool. Thank you for doing that. So uh, Brenna, uh, you and I have talked a few times on the podcast and it's always a pleasure to to have uh, space and, and time with you. And so thanks for being with us. Um, Can you uh, flesh out for us, what does open pedagogy mean to you? Sure. Um, I think of it as being about sort of broadly conceived what I call teaching and learning in the open. And so that might mean just opening up your own practice so that your fellow instructors can find out what you do and how you do it. Um, Opening up your practice in a way that makes it more transparent to students. So they understand why you make the choices you make in the classroom, which also I think this is not what open pedagogy is, but I always think it increases buy-in when students know why you're doing the thing you're doing. Um, Importantly, I think open pedagogy is about giving students opportunities to co-create knowledge um, and not just to co-create knowledge in the classroom, but to do it in a way that is meaningful to them and beneficial to others. So finding some way to share out that knowledge that's generated in the classroom. Um, And my favorite way of thinking about it is to think about it as practicing your discipline in the wild. So giving students an opportunity to get really real with this discipline, whatever it is, um, and really try to bridge that gap between how we understand sort of the confines and the rules of our discipline in the safety of the post-secondary institution versus how our disciplines are actually both encountered and enacted in the wild. So let's talk about that for a second. Um, in the wild, mm-hmm. uh, how, is that, how is that embraced by faculty or other mm-hmm. TNL people that you talk to? Because yeah. to me, that's just like, hey, what, do you, what do you mean in the wild? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of tricky, eh? Um, so, you know, 
I think that oftentimes students report back, you know, we have those surveys that go out to all graduates in the province and, you know, how did, how did the experience of being in university or college, how did your program prepare you for your work life, blah, 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 blah. And we always see to a greater or lesser extent, a bit of a gulf there, right. Between what students learned in the classroom and what they, and, and what expectations that created and what they experience when they get out into the working world. And now some of that is always going to happen because, you know, a learning space is necessarily protected, right. And in, for good reason. Um, but I do think that there are great ways that open pedagogy as a practice and as a concept can, can help students see like, what is it to talk about this subject out in the world, right? How do people receive it? What can I expect in response? Um, it also helps students see things that can seem really um, maybe, I mean, academic in sort of the most pejorative sense of the word, like things like the ways we ask students to cite or safety practices we ask them to enact or, you know, charting procedures in a, in a nursing class, all of those things that can feel really divorced from the actual knowledge production. But then students can go out into the world and see like, oh, actually, these are the kinds of professional practices that I'll be asked to engage in. And I can see why they're important because I'm seeing them in real life or in the wild, as I described. So I think that um, the most powerful thing about open pedagogy is that word open, literally opening up the experience of the post-secondary institution to the world. Um, and that can be really scary <laughs> for a lot of us. Um, but I think ultimately it's very beneficial for students for that to be a little bit less of a, for the, the, the educational institution to be a little bit less of a rarefied space and to see more of a continuum between the discipline in the classroom and the discipline out in the wild. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thank you. So have you always been an open pedagogy advocate? I have always liked these kinds of assignments. Um, I don't think I knew what open pedagogy was when I first started doing it. <laughs> um, I've always had sort of an instinctive move towards what many of us call authentic assessment trying to find ways to assess our students that, again, are more akin to what they might be asked to do outside of the confines of the college or university. Um, that said, I mean, my background is English literature. I love an essay. You know, I really do like genuinely <laughs> have a lot of affection for the form of the essay and the structure of it. So I wouldn't say that I have sort of always and exclusively practiced open pedagogies, but I have always found that when I make space for that in my classroom, um, learning outcomes are better, students get more engaged, and I feel more like I'm contributing something really positive rather than that experience of like, I mean, everybody who's ever taught an essay-based course has had the experience of painstakingly marking essays. And I mark essays like I do everything else obsessively um, and handing it to students and then have them flip to the end, see the letter grade and drop it in the recycling bin on the way out the door. Um, Open pedagogy is really about getting away from that kind of assessment practice and finding ways to assess students that feel a little bit more relevant, I think, to everybody. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so what influenced you uh, in your, in your trajectory from 
not really knowing what open pedagogy was to what you're experiencing, teaching, modeling, mentoring now? Yeah. I mean, there's been so many people and I think my, you know, I have to say that um, Twitter has been just massively influential in my practice because I follow so many open pedagogy people. So I get good ideas from them, but my first experience of open pedagogy, and it wasn't called that. It was when I was in grad school. Um, I had a professor, her name was Miriam Jones at the university of New Brunswick. And she taught our Renaissance women's literature class. And she set us off on this Wikipedia assignment where we had to create comprehensive Wikipedia entries for women writers from the Renaissance because they had no presence on Wikipedia whatsoever. Um, And so as a class, we were sort of all set about to improve that part of Wikipedia. And she was also an instructor who blogged and she had us blogging our process. So it was a real experience for me of not just putting my work out there into the world for the first time. So it's like before I'd even done a conference presentation, um, but also, and really importantly, receiving feedback and criticism, not from her as the professor, but from the community of Wikipedians, from a community of bloggers, because she really had us sort of inject ourselves into these spaces. Um, and I, I found it very frightening at first. <laughs> Um, and one of the people in our class ended up going, uh, sort of upsetting, uh, a Wikipedian and he got, he was like revising all of our work and he was just like, he was not impressed with our contributions to, uh, to Wikipedia, but which was actually great, like totally unplanned. And this is the kind of thing that you have to be comfortable with when you embrace open pedagogy, right? Like, our professor never anticipated that we would end up in a classroom-wide turf war with some random guy on Wikipedia. <laughs> and yet we did. And he was, you know, in retrospect, he, it all felt very mean to me at the time. But in retrospect, he was, he had looked after this area in Wikipedia for a long time. And suddenly there were like 12 graduate students stomping all over his turf. And what he was really forcing us to do was find better and better sources um, and to challenge his, I mean, in many ways, he, he had a very old school, you know, fairly misogynist perspective on literature and we were challenging it, which forced us to bring better and better sources to the table in the argument. And, you know, in the long run, it was probably one of the better learning experiences that I've ever had for so many reasons including making me more confident as a writer. And so for me, it was really a, uh, something that I wanted to bring into my undergrad classes because I really appreciated the level of trust that was shown to me in that graduate class. But I don't think those learning experiences have to just be for graduate students. And so from there, I really wanted, I wanted to create ways for my undergrads to have the same kind of wild and harried and memorable learning experiences. I could still, I could tell you the guy's screen name. Like I still remember, I'm not gonna, oh. but I could. It's all locked up here. <laughs> yeah, I'm not gonna, but we could. we could. We could out this guy in a hurry. And the 15 people that listen to my me. podcast would know for sure. But um, You're big in Renaissance Wikipedia land. Did you not know? Yeah, well, it's all good. It's all good. It's it's interesting that, that I, I think, I think, I think there's a lot of value in that kind of engagement. I mean, I, I would never want to wish a, a 
toxic environment on anybody, <laughs> but you know, there's, there's something to be said about going into a space, whether it's open or closed, but going into a space and engaging with somebody who's got more experience than yourself, probably more education um, and, and has a claim of ownership. If that can even be, you know, if anybody can even claim ownership in Wikipedia, like, mm-hmm. or anything online other than your own, own output. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know that there's, there's, there's always this big push and this big cry to, to teach people how to critically think and we can show them charts and, you know, and flow, flow diagrams until they're, they're nauseated, but it really doesn't make any difference until they're in the fire. Right. Like Mm -hmm. you've discussed and I've never done more persuasive writing than trying to convince this guy. Right. Like, and, uh, and it was really all incredible skills development as a researcher, as a writer, as a thinker, as a critic, but also to recognize um, that the internet is, you know, in many ways, a hostile place for certain perspectives. And how do you navigate that? Um, And it was great to have that experience with a class full of people who could all jump in. Right. And we'd start class every day, like, okay, um, I saw so-and-so's response to him and now he's critiquing this source. Who's got a response for that? And how are we going to craft it? And, you know, it was, it was great. I mean, again, you could not design such a learning experience, but it was great. Yeah. uh, That's awesome. It kind of leads us into the next question I wanted to ask you about open pedagogy as a philosophy of education versus Mm. a pragmatic approach. Uh, Could you build on that a little bit more and, and talk to us a little bit about your perspective on how, uh, open ped is is more of a philosophy than it is pragmatism? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I was sort of wrestling with it. I was glad I had these ahead of time. Um, I think that as a philosophy of education, open pedagogy is at its core about, you know, a few specific things like sharing, right? Um, a, a kind of openness or a transparency with our colleagues, with our students, with our community. and those things can all be like operationalized in really pragmatic ways, right? Like I, you know, I could say I put a CC license on everything. I don't remember to do that, but like in theory, one could put a CC license on everything and say that you're enacting um, open pedagogy. But there's an, um, when we think about open pedagogy as a philosophy, instead, there's a sort of, intangibility and nebulousness, something that I'm trying to get at in my writing and speaking lately, which is about openness, um, less like, oh, are we going to do open source or is this going to be openly published and more like, how do we approach education open heartedly? And that sounds Hmm. very cheesy, but (laughs) what I mean by it is... A kind of educational practice that makes space for everyone that recognizes the experience of diverse learners, um, that celebrates the expertise in the room, right? That recognizes the brilliance of the students who we find it, who we find ourselves in front of. All of that is much more about a kind of philosophical approach to your learners in the classroom and how you choose to engage with them and also to your own practice as a learner. Um, much more than it is about, you know, whether or not you remember to put the right license on the right item. And I think that 
open education can sometimes feel a little bit hostile to newcomers because it does have a tendency to really get stuck in the weeds of those discussions, right? Like if you've ever wandered wandered into a Twitter fight between people about whether a non-commercial CC license counts as open or not, like, first of all, oh my God, (laughs) how is this the central question? But second of all, like if you don't even really have a feel like you have a strong handle on what licensing is in the first place, then that conversation is just super, super alienating. Um, But what's not alienating is to have a conversation about why you might try to work towards more transparency in your classroom with your students and what that might look like. Um, And so I tend to be far more interested in that philosophical side than in the nitty gritty debates around like information distribution and how we do it. Um, Not because that stuff's not important. It totally is. But I'm really happy for like a bunch of folks who really know their stuff there to sort out the weeds. (laughs) And I want to focus on having conversations with faculty about how to make classroom a more sort of lowercase o open space for everyone and the ways in which open pedagogy can help with that so in in your conversations with faculty Mm. what do you think are some of the top fears that they have when it comes to thinking about going into the open i think i've said this to you before on a podcast so you know just splice in if the other one's better, splice that in here. But um, I think that the weird thing about classroom teaching in particular is that it is simultaneously a public act, right? There's people in the room, they're looking at you or you're being recorded on Zoom. That's real, real public. Um, And it's the most, it is in many ways like this inaction of your values, right? Like the most sort of private, like sort of central components of your soul go into shape how you approach teaching and learning. And so there's this weird thing with teaching where I think people expect it to be this public act with which we all feel relatively comfortable. Um, and the sense that it's deeply vulnerable to have other people come in and watch you teach, right? Um, And that I think can be doubly true for folks who find themselves teaching in post-secondary with very little teacher training themselves. You know, it's one thing to feel like you've got this credential that you can lean back on, like, no, I can do this, look. Um, And very different to be like, well, no, I went to school and then I ran out of school. So I started teaching, (laughs) I don't really know. Or I'm really good at doing this thing out in the world. And now I want to teach other people to do it. But I nobody's ever shown me how to bridge that gap. Right. And so I think that that can make the experience all the more vulnerable. I think also, so I think that creates, sorry, I think that creates an anxiety about critique from our peers, right. To open up our classrooms like that. Um, I also think there's just, there's varying levels of support within departments and faculties and institutions for experimentation and play. And I think if you feel like you're in a space where everybody's going to kind of raise their eyebrow at you. It's hard to be open if you don't feel like you're supported in doing that work. Um, And then I think, you know, in BC in particular, there is this very specific stress that those of us who teach at primarily transfer institutions experience around articulation. Um, You know, I've sat in enough of those BC cat meetings to feel like 
there's only so much experimentation and play that the little sisters are allowed to do, right? Because because the big brothers can do whatever they want. They could just decide tomorrow that like all of first year is going to be submitted in Play-Doh and we don't have to go along with it. Um, but when when we see that kind of creativity and exploration at the transfer institutions, primarily transfer institutions, there's often a lot of anxiety about what this will do for articulation. And so there's like, that's a lot, right? <laughs> like those are a lot of things. Those, that's touching at every level. That's touching at your job security, your interpersonal relationships at work. It's touching on like your institution's reputation, right? That's a lot to carry. Um, and I think that the system is designed that way for a reason, right? Like the system is not designed um, to encourage you to be creative, to play around with the very concept of grades, to question the need for the traditional assignments in your discipline. Like it, particularly if you are an institution that relies on transfer, there is there are very strong um, systemic structures in place to dissuade you from doing that. And so I think if if those are kind of fears that you're carrying, um, you can remember that it's OK to start small. Right. Like if you hear about an open assignment, you know, creating a website or engaging with a, a local nonprofit to improve some component of what they do or a page like those don't have to be the central assessment components of the course to begin with. Those are places you can start um, with. You know, I've seen people start with boat and making their open assessment sort of bonus assignments in the course so that students can go and play if they want to. But there's no pressure on their final grade to do that. Um, I think that there are ways to begin to play in this space. It could often feel like all or nothing, right? Like you go and you read, you know, the first person blog you read is Jesse Stommel. Jesse's great and super inspirational, but like throw out the grades and co-create all knowledge. And you're sitting here being like, well, if I don't have two essays in a final exam, they're not going to transfer my course. <laughs> right. Like those are really different experiences of the teaching and learning space. And they change how much autonomy you have in the classroom. I think it's okay to recognize that. Um, but to give yourself permission to start small when it comes to experimenting and playing, and then, you know, you might have a really great learning experience that you end up very excited to tell your colleagues about. Right. So you never know where to lead. Yeah, that's really good advice because I think in, even in my own practice, I run into that a lot where it, there's everything is so standardized and, and, you know, it's not like I'm teaching a one-off course where I have all this autonomy and all, you know, and all this flexibility, you know, I'm one of 10 other instructors that are teaching the same course and we're all air quote unquote encouraged to use the same <laughs> textbook. Right. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, because we got to keep the continuity and the integrity of the course because this course feeds into so many different credentials and levels. And it's just like, yeah, OK. <laughs> right. But then it, it, like I'm glad that you said that start small and, and pick something that's not threatening. If I if I'm mm -hmm. listening to you correctly, mm -hmm. not threatening to the system where they're immediately going to throw a bunch of T cells at you to eliminate this threat. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and because I've, I've experienced that where I've rushed too quickly and brought in open textbook and, 
you know, at first on the surface, people are like, Oh, that's interesting. And that's sounds exciting. And then eight weeks into the 14 week course, I get a, I get a knock on the on my <laughs> virtual door and it's like yeah. the program coordinator. And he's like, so tell me more about this textbook you're using. I'm like, well, didn't you read my last eight emails? But, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. That's, that's encouraging even for, for, for people like myself that are again, dipping the toe in open pedagogy. Cause you're right. Jesse Strommel is cool. But some of the thoughts actually do kind of make me go, whoa, what? <laughs> yeah. I'm supposed to throw everything out. I can't do that. No, yeah. I'm, I may as well just pack up my suitcase and go stand on the street corner with a cardboard sign saying, you know, faculty for hire. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we, I mean, it's we are all really dealing with very different levels of autonomy. And I think that particularly around assessment structures, you know, when I moved to BC and I learned about the articulation system, I was simultaneously like, whoa, this is really cool. Like students here have so much mobility and also, wow, this really limits faculty autonomy in these particularly these first and second year classes. Right. Like, I mean, I was teaching first year academic writing, like you, um, there's only so far your own way you can go. <laughs> you have to have students produce a research paper at the end, or you're not actually doing your job. Right. And so recognizing that is important. I do think this, this is where the philosophy, this is where the philosophical component of open is helpful, right? So even if you are locked in lockstep to an assessment structure and um, a textbook, you can open up your transparency with your students, right? You can talk about that, you know, like this is the assessment that we're doing. And the reason we do this is because, you know, this is how articulation works in the province. I've always found that students are given so little information about why they're being asked to do things. We just sort of ask them to like move through these structures, um, like so much raw material. Uh, and, and I, you know, I ended up towards the end of my classroom teaching career, really focusing my whole academic writing course, the, the, the sort of theme and all the readings were about the way we teach writing, right? Like trying to talk to students about the very idea rather than as a traditional way of doing it is having some sort of, a theme that you organize the course around, but students don't have a lot of choice of which section they end up in, right? With a course like that, they're just going to take whatever's available. So you'd end up with a bunch of students who cared a lot about the theme you'd chosen and a bunch who didn't care at all. And I found the one thing that all students were interested in was how the education system worked or failed to. And so we do readings like, you know, why are you told for 12 years that the ultimate form of the essay is a five paragraph essay? And then you show up at university and we go, why are you doing that? That's dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We need way more than five paragraphs. (laughs) Exactly. And so actually, you know, having conversations with students about the process, I find really helpful. And so I think that even if you find yourself really locked into a very particular structure, um, a way to start is to just challenge yourself to be a little bit more transparent with students about, you know, why you do the things you do, why your classroom policies are the way they are. Right. I can't remember who said it. There was a great Twitter thread not that long ago that was talking about, you know, go through your course policies. And if the answer, if, if the, if you ask the question why for each of your course policies and the only answer you can come with, with is because I said so, then that's probably not a great policy. And so putting yourself in the position on the first day of explaining those policies to students and where they come from and why you enforce them. You know, these are all baby steps towards a more open and transparent pedagogy that have nothing to do with big, scary, open out in the world assignments. Yeah. So I, I have a, 
we may not answer this next question and it's not on my sheet, but it, when you, when you talk about the transparency and opening it up for students, does this lead into minimizing that hidden curriculum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is something I care passionately about as someone who was in the back half of her second year of university before she figured out the syllabus and the course outline were the same thing. Right. <laughs> I just <laughs> never, never thought to ask. Just people kept saying this word syllabus and I just kept nodding and I was doing okay. So I figured everything was fine. Um, yeah, there is so much hidden curriculum and we know for sure that this makes the experience of first generation students harder, right? Especially if they don't have anybody at home, they can ask those questions of, but that's not the only students who struggle with uh, the sort of the things we assume students know. I'll give you another example of this. Um, I was uh, an English student in my undergrad. We do a lot of reader responses in English. And I understand now that a reader response is like uh, one or two paragraphs of your initial feelings, things you noticed in the text, key ideas you want to bring up in the class discussion, right? It's kind of supposed to be like your rough notes for the class discussion. But no one ever said that. I thought they were essays. And in my first year, I was taking 20th century literature. uh, And I, we were doing a reader response every week and I was writing like a three to five page paper with citations every week. And I was handing them in and my professor was just handing them back with an A on the bottom, but no notes, nothing like this is way above and beyond what you need to be doing. Like nothing, no commentary about it. And I was like, man, does first year exhaust everybody? Like I am so burnt out. (laughs) Wow. Um, That's a classic example where that instructor assumed that everybody in the room knew what a reader response was or knew to ask. What's wild about that story, as I think back on it now, is that it never occurred to me to ask. I just, my brain was like, read a response. Mm, sounds like an essay. I'll just write some essays. And I just started writing essays and nobody stopped me or corrected me. It was a full year course, Tim. I wrote like 28 essays for that course. <laughs> you should put those essays together into a book and recoup some of the money. <laughs> I should call it mistakes. I didn't know I was making. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, to me, that's a that's a really classic example, not just of what doesn't get communicated to students, but I'm sure that that instructor assumed that if we didn't know what we were supposed to be doing, we would ask. Right. Um, like he was a nice man. He wasn't setting out to be cruel. And he probably thought I was some kind of weird overachiever. Not that I was like absolutely floundering in this course because I was completely overworked. Um, so, yeah, I think that you know, a big part for me, a big motivator for me when it comes to opening up my practice to students is I want them to feel safe to ask the kinds of questions that I haven't even thought of yet. Right. I can answer all the questions I can think of. I try to do that, you know, in the course outline, I try to do that in the first day. It's the questions I haven't thought of that are the critical ones that have to come out. And so you've got to build a space where students feel safe enough to ask those questions. That's really important. Yeah. You're here. And I think to you, in, in, and I think you mentioned this before, but, in, but in, even in opening that space, you're opening yourself up to be vulnerable, to have new questions come at you where you haven't rehearsed the answer yeah. and, and forcing yourself to never say, well, because I told you to do this, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. Cause it, you know, cause that's just bad parenting, <laughs> right. It's true. Well, it's so true. And, 
there are times where you have to tell your oh, kids, yeah. you just do this because I'm your parent and you just, you're just going to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But in, so the, the analogy breaks down, I, I get it, <laughs> but, uh, but, I, but you, as you, you don't re- love being that guy. Right. And you don't <laughs> love it in the classroom either. And it's one of those things that makes it really clear how, how power dynamics function. Right. I think particularly in post-secondary, it's really easy for instructors who don't want to sort of ask the hard questions of their own practice. It's really easy to imagine that the power dynamics are, are not there, right? These are adults. They're choosing to be here. They're paying their money. Um, you know, I'm a subject matter expert. I'm here to share that. But obviously the power dynamics are huge and you, you can't avoid them if you force yourself to really have those conversations about um, the why, the why of what's happening in your classroom. And you know what? Sometimes the why is because the department makes me right. Like I don't like having an attendance policy, but the department asks for it. And here's the reasoning that they give. And I am going to be enforcing this policy because I work here. Right. That is also a conversation to have. Um, I think that it can be really helpful for students to understand the limits of their instructor's autonomy as well. You know, like these are all healthy things. It's not there's nothing about this job that says you have to stand up the front of the room and have ultimate power and control. And I think the more we pretend to that, the more difficult the job we're making for ourselves, frankly. Yeah, I agree. And the more frustrated we get and, and, you know, and I think it's a good mentorship too, for what's going to, um, what's going to be their reality when, when they graduate from whatever program or school that they're, that they're involved in is that that not every space is going to be, you know, rainbows and and butterflies where, you know, they get to, they get to, you know, have all this autonomy and all these, these really fluid boundaries. Sometimes they're going to have to say kind of like what you just said, I have to do this because my boss is requiring it of me. And, you know, I I can see the, I can see the why and the principles and Mm -hmm. they may not be in totally total alignment, but I'm going to do it because I'm required to, it's part of my job. And yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Thank you so much, Brenna, for taking the time. Oh my gosh, we're out of time already. Oh my yeah. goodness. Okay. All yeah. right. So we'll, we'll have to have a part two <laughs> later down the road. Yeah. Anytime. Um, Cause uh, for those of you who are listening, we've only made it through halfway through the questions that, that I have listed. So yeah, that's a good tell you my villain origin story and everything. So. <laughs> okay. Oh, <laughs> there we go. Good. So thanks again, Brenna, for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Tim. Take care. Against my country, when you come against my family, you try to destroy my people. I can't just stand.